Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg. Welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, leaders under pressure as we reflect on Rishi Sunak's Brianna Jai trans gaffe and Keir Starmer's green pledge U-turn. Sunak, never averse to firing off a few rounds in the culture wars, made this comment at Prime Minister's question time when the mum of murdered transgender teenager Brianna Jai was in the visitors gallery of the Commons. It's a bit rich, Mr Speaker, to hear about promises from someone who's broken every single promise he was elected on. I mean, I think I counted almost 30 in the last year. Pensions, planning, peerages, public sector pay, tuition fees, childcare, second referendums, defining a woman. Although, although in fairness, that was only 99% of a U-turn. The list goes on, but the theme is the same, Mr Speaker. It's empty words, broken promises and absolutely no plan. Of all of all the work of all the weeks to say that when Brianna's mother is in this chamber. Shame. That's Keir Starmer responding to Rishi Sunak. But Starmer himself came under fire as Labour ditched its £28 billion a year green prosperity plan, prompting criticisms from Tories and environmentalists that the Labour leader doesn't really believe in anything. Let's get more now with the Byline Times political editor, Adam Bienkoff. Adam, you've been doing a bit of polling, I think, on the question of Brianna Jai and whether Rishi Sunak should apologise. According to Sunak, the comments he made at PMQs were a legitimate criticism of Labour. Yes, that's right. I was in the chamber for Prime Minister's questions. And the session began, as we heard, with Keir Starmer welcoming Brianna Jai's mother to the chamber, which it immediately became clear that the Prime Minister didn't, didn't seem to have picked up on at all, because he didn't reference it in his response. And then he went on in a, a question later to detailing all of these U-turns by Starmer and, and making that joke, joke that he's made before in the chamber about Starmer not knowing what a, what a woman is. And it was immediately clear this was a massive gaffe, and I think Starmer did well to to pick up on it. And also you could see Rishi Sunak's spokespeople uh, elsewhere in the gallery sort of furiously sort of tapping away on their phones in reaction to it. So it was clear that this was a, a moment that immediately went viral on, on social media. There's a briefing after Prime Minister's questions between the spokespeople of, of Keir Starmer and, and Rishi Sunak, and they didn't have any real response to it. I immediately put the question to them why the Prime Minister hadn't apologised. And they were really struggling. I said, oh, it was a legitimate attempt to point to the U-turns by the the opposition, but they wouldn't defend the comments and they wouldn't apologise either. And I thought this will probably last a few hours, maybe a day or so, but at some point they're going to have to backtrack on it. Actually, they haven't. They've just stuck with the same line all week. And it hasn't been gone down with the public well at all. We got some polling in at Byline Times today, commissioned by the pollsters, we think. It shows that 77% of voters believe Sunak should say sorry for the comments. And even Conservative voters agree, around 60% of Conservative voters agree that he should say sorry for the comments. But he's still sticking with it. And I think it's a, it was a terrible judgment from Sunak. I don't think he consciously decided to make those comments, obviously not as a, as a dig at Brianna Jai's uh, family. But I think... I get the sense that he didn't even pick up 
the reference from Keir Starmer, he was so focused on his lines, his pre-planned lines, he was just completely unable to to drift away from them. But he had an opportunity to apologise after that. A Labour MP asked him to apologise. And again, he completely ignored the request to apologise and just sort of blundered on. I think it's revealed a, a real weakness of Sunak as a politician. And there were plenty of Conservative MPs afterwards sort of questioning it, including the leader of the House of Commons, Penny Morden, who said that the Prime Minister had reflected on his words. You know, I'm sure he has reflected on it, but we hadn't seen any evidence of it in, in, in his public comments. So it was, it was a pretty sort of remarkable week all round, really, on, on that topic. Yeah, and he was given another opportunity to apologise, Sunak, on a local BBC radio station in Somerset. And he has said that what happened to Brianna Jai was a tragedy. He says using that to try and detract from the completely separate and very clear point I was making about Keir Starmer and his proven track record of U-turning on multiple policy issues because he doesn't have a plan is, in his view, wrong. So doubling down, even trebling down. Yeah, it's all the more remarkable given that Brunner Jai's father himself has said that these were shocking words and he was appalled by them. I mean, it's one thing to hit back at Keir Starmer and make a political argument, but when you've got the family, or at least one member of the family, saying the Prime Minister should apologise, I think that's the point. I think Gordon Brown actually said this this week as well. Sometimes in that job, you just have to accept that you have to apologise and move on. And he could easily have done that at any point this week, and he's refused to do so. And I think that says a lot about the misjudgment generally of, of the Prime Minister. Yeah, we sometimes hear about the inability of politicians to read the room. And it seems in this case, Sunak did misread the Chamber of the House of Commons, really. Some of his own MPs have been made uncomfortable by this. Maybe not all of them, because culture wars are a staple of a significant part of the Conservative Party at the moment, it seems to me. But the context of Brianna Jai's murder, which is horrible, horrible Mm. episode, just leaves, I think, for many people a very sour taste. It's worth saying that he has made the similar comments in the chamber before and when he was running to be Conservative Party leader. And it never caused a huge row in Westminster previously. And previously, when he's made similar comments in the, the chamber, I've asked about it, asked, asked his spokespeople about it afterwards. And there were no sort of further questions from other members of the lobby. It just wasn't, there wasn't an interest in it. I think it's only because of the horrific mode of Brianna Jain, the fact that she was in the chamber, that it became this big issue. It's almost like it's less to do with the kind of principle or more kind of uh, almost manners of, of making that comment. And also shows that the public mood generally has shifted away from the Conservatives and away from Rishi Sunak more generally. But yes, it's interesting to see how that reaction has changed because, as I say, what he said was really nothing that he hasn't said in the past and other Conservative politicians haven't said in the past either. When he was originally standing to be leader, Sunak wasn't seen as a natural culture warrior. But since he's become PM, and presumably this has been on advice, he has lent into these culture war issues and indeed seemed to have positively relished them. But you've observed before that that's not necessarily popular with the public. It may win support from some of his own backbenchers, not all of them by any means. But these issues around what a woman is around trans issues, for example, though clearly very important for some people, they're not the things that really move the electorate as a whole. 
Well, absolutely not. And we can see that in the polling we conducted. I would say on, on Sunak that it's it's very true that he was not seen as that kind of politician. But I think having followed his campaign quite closely at the time, there were signs of it back then. And there was one line in particular that he did keep on repeating on, on the campaign trail and, and at Hustings, which is, I want to take on this left-wing woke culture that seems to want to cancel our history, our values and our women. So he was leaning into the sort of trans-cultural debate back then as well. But it's true that he doesn't he doesn't give off that vibe, the kind of Lee Anderson, Suella Braveman type vibe of being a culture warrior. And it doesn't really seem to work very well when he tries, as we saw this week. People see him as being a more kind of centrist figure, regardless of what his actual politics are. He would have been sensible to kind of lean into that impression and try to capture the centre ground. But again, he hasn't done that. And I think that's a significant part of why his premiership has failed to date. Is his inability to respond to the moment, which was apparent in that exchange with Keir Starmer, a reflection on him as a politician? He seems to be very adept at delivering lines that have been rehearsed, less good, perhaps, at responding to the moment and thinking on his feet. Yeah, and he's quite awkward in public interactions as well. There was a recent incident when he was on the campaign trail and he was speaking to a NHS worker on, on, I think it was on a high street somewhere in the country, and she was detailing the sort of experience in the NHS and the horrific pressures it was putting on. And he sort of appeared to break off into laughter and then, then walk off. It's worth saying his spokespeople say he wasn't laughing at the woman. But that's what it looked like to anyone watching. A better skilled politician would have made sure he didn't give that impression. You know, that's why a lot of Conservative MPs are starting to really despair about their prospects. Well, not so, I mean, they've been despairing for some time, but even more so in recent weeks, starting to really despair about their prospects at the next general election because they, they worry that when we do come to the campaign proper, I mean, although you could say the campaign's pretty much started already, but when we actually get into the, the kind of couple of months before the election, that he really could struggle. And rather than the polls narrowing, as most people expect at the moment, the situation could actually become even worse for the, for the Conservatives than they look, it looks at the moment. Because in that moment, when he was on the streets being harangued, as politicians are, I'm sure, on a weekly, if not a daily basis by angry voters, he really didn't seem like a man of the people. He seemed very uncomfortable. And it was quite shocking in a way, because you think, well, that's something that anyone who's door knocked as a politician would have had to contend yeah. with at some point. Yeah. And, and, you know, just, I mean, to sort of go over to Starmer for a bit, that is also a criticism to a lesser extent of Keir Starmer among some people in the Labour Party, is that he's not really a kind of natural sort of think on your feet politician. I mean, his background is as a, as a civil servant. Some people in the Labour Party and Labour MPs question his political ability, but it's fair to say he's not had anything like the kind of nightmare that Rishi Sunak has had in, in recent weeks and, and months. That's yeah. I'll come to Starmer now, but I want to link it to Sunak because you remember back in September of last year, Sunak and his advisers made this decision that the environment would become a wedge issue. The Conservatives decided not to abandon their green pledges, not to abandon the goal of reaching net zero. But, for example, Sunak announced a five-year delay to the ban on new petrol and diesel cars, watered down the phasing out of gas boilers. So in that context, Labour's £28 billion green prosperity plan was something that they could seize on and say, well, look, the general public are not as obsessed by these environmental issues, climate change, as Labour are. We can make your life cheaper 
will still achieve net zero eventually, but without being obsessed by it and without having to tax you in the way that Labour's plans might suggest. And again, I think that was misguided attempt to sort of lean into what they see as sort of culture war wedge issues. Actually, when you look at the polling across the board, not just among Labour supporters, Conservative voters as, as well, there is a lot of concern about the environment and it tends to be in the top five issues for most voters. Uh, in some polls, the third or fourth you know, top issue for, for voters. So I, I think that was a mistake by Sunak. I think he, as boring as they were, he should have stuck with his five pledges. Admittedly, he has, he's only really met one of them so far, but he's just stuck with that kind of sort of boring message about competence rather than sort of leading into these issues where actually I think he's more out of step with the public than he suggests. I mean, it, these wedge issues only really work when you're sort of, you genuinely are speaking on behalf of the silent majority. And in the case of the environment, actually voters across all demographics are really concerned about the environment. And I think, unfortunately, they have gone for Labour on, on that issue and I do think Labour have, to a certain extent, fallen for that and timidly responded and sort of backed away from their message and their agenda on that, which, again, I think is a mistake. Admittedly, Labour's justification for that is not really that voters don't care about the environment. So it's about the economics of it. And the, they're trying to shrug off the suggestion that they're sort of careless with money and, and finances. But I do think they should have stuck to their guns. And I think Sunak hadn't shifted the polls since they've been pushing that agenda in recent months. And I think Labour should have stuck to their guns and they haven't. Labour says that the reason for abandoning the plan, which was to turbocharge the green economy, is essentially down to Liz Truss. It's down to mm-hmm. the mess that she and Kwasi Kwarteng made to the economy, which have driven up borrowing costs. This green prosperity plan, as they call it, was conceived before the cost of borrowing had risen so high. So they insist that they're not abandoning the initiative as a whole, but they're waiting until it can be afforded. That's their rationale. Yeah, I don't particularly buy that argument. There's a big difference between borrowing to fund data spending and borrowing to invest in things that are going to save people money, which their plan was. And they've massively watered it down. The announcement they made this week suggests it's going to be around a fifth of of the original plan. I mean, it already been watered down from originally, it was, it was going to be 28 billion every year. That was then watered down to be 28 billion by the, the end of the parliamentary term. Now it's it's around 20, I think it's around 23 billion for the entire parliamentary term. So it's a, it's a massively watered down. And I think there was a good economic argument. There was a good environmental argument. I think there was a good political argument for it. The polls suggested it was hugely popular in focus groups. Voters suggested they were really excited about the policy. And the criticism that that Starmer has got over his U-turn on this week has actually also come from the right of the party. Someone like John McTurnan, who is the former, uh, I think, former policy director for Tony Blair, has been incredibly critical of this decision. So, yeah, I I do think it was a a big mistake by Starmer. I think what does come up in focus groups is this fear that he doesn't really stand for anything and that he flip-flops. And you can tell that by the fact that that is an attack that Rishi Sunak is leaning into with Keir Starmer. You heard it at Prime Minister's questions a lot. He doesn't really, what does he really believe? He flip-flops. And, you know, you can see it in how the, the U-turn has been received in the press. The Daily Mail headline suggesting that he's a, he's a flip-flopper. Starmer was going to be attacked over this policy, whether he kept it or whether he didn't keep it. 
I think he'd be been better to have been attacked by the Conservatives and, and their supporters in the press, having kept a, a good policy than being attacked for having dropped a, a good policy. So, so yeah, I think it was a pretty mistake. I think it was a policy mistake as well. I don't think it's going to change the outcome of the next general election. I think voters are pretty res- resolved now on their choice of w- wanting a change. But there are a lot of people out there who aren't really sure what difference a Labour government will make. And I do think that it's sensible for a party in opposition to give voters some sense of hope and some sense of, of real change when it comes to a general election, rather than just saying, well, we'll be better, we'll be more competent than the other guys, uh, you know, and we'll keep most things the same. I don't think that's really going to excite people. And I think there is a risk that we could have a really low turnout election when it comes to polling day. And when you have low turnout, you can end up getting surprising results. So I think it's a bit of complacency, really, on on Labour's part when it comes to to this issue. Yeah, the money would have been spent on building gigafactories for electric vehicle batteries, to build more offshore wind turbines for insulating homes, planting trees, building flood defences. Labour says that all of those things will be done, but only as and when the public purse allows. And what strikes me, Adam, I've mentioned this before, is that the narrative that Labour can't be trusted on the economy Mm. plays to something that happened in 2010, which is when, of course, the coalition government came in and Gordon Brown was defeated at the ballot box off the back of the financial crash. The financial crash has somehow been pinned on Labour, not least because Labour MP and former Chief Secretary of the Treasury, Liam Byrne, famously left that note, didn't he, as he as he left the Treasury saying, sorry, all the money's gone to the Tories. Just a bit of a, a, a joke, I suppose. But the crash was caused by irresponsible bankers, the very mm. people whose bonuses the Conservative government recently decided to lift the cap on, and which Labour has now accepted the cap on their bonuses will be lifted on. Now, bankers' bonuses were capped because of the financial crash. And it just strikes me as very interesting that Labour's now been forced into a corner over its green policies because it wants to be seen as being responsible for the economy, but the problems for which it has been blamed in the past, certainly in terms of the the crash of 2008, 2010, were not its fault. I mean, they really weren't, as a matter of fact. No, and I I think it was a big mistake of Labour at the time and when they went into opposition to not make that argument. And I think they, by and large, kind of accepted the Conservative framing on the causes of the crash. And yes, although they, they opposed various austerity measures that, that happened at the time, the overall sort of argument was not made by Labour. And the result is the kind of 14 years of a flatlining economy, low growth, low productivity that we've seen since then. And one of the big arguments for Labour's original £28 billion green plan is, yes, the environment, environmental side of it was important, but equally important was the economic side of it and actually investing in the economy. And investment in the economy over recent years has flatlined and and reduced in in many areas. And there was a very good economic case for actually putting big investment, sort of biodynamics type approach to the economy that has delivered 
big growth in the US and we haven't seen similar growth in the UK. And had it gone ahead, the amount of public investment in the economy would still be lower in the UK than many other sort of countries in the West. It wouldn't it wouldn't be a, a massive turnaround, but it would at least have pushed things in, in the right direction. And that's why lots of people, not just on the left, but right across the party were were arguing for it. And I think, again, I think that's a big reason why this is both a sort of economic mistake by Labour, but also a political mistake as well. Yeah, the Inflation Reduction Act is what it's called in the United States, but Biden's plan is a green prosperity plan by any other name. It should be noted that Labour will still have a national wealth fund for investing in clean technology uh, so that uh, we'll get more recycled steel, for example. There will be some gigafactories as well, and they are committed to carbon-free electricity by 2030. It's possible once they're actually in government that they will become more confident with, with some of this agenda and we may actually see some of it coming back. The argument that some people make is it's a lot easier to sort of make these kind of proposals once you're in a government rather than when you're you're in opposition. But obviously, you know, we've got no way of judging that at this point. No. And I suppose there may be an argument that by abandoning the Green Prosperity Plan now, at least Labour can't then be accused in government of breaking its promises. The question is, if it does get into government, what promises will be left to break? Yes. Yeah. And, and you know, I think there is one argument you could make on sort of Starmer's behalf is that they shouldn't have put a number on it in the first place so far out. Because it's right, the economy has changed to then and the circumstances have changed and, and the sort of envelope of government spending has changed a great deal over that period. So perhaps they should have waited longer to make that pledge. But, you know, we are where we are as far as that's concerned. Yeah. Well, one day we may have a government of whatever stripe that decides that all new homes should be built to zero carbon standards, that they should have solar panels on the roof, that they should have heat pumps, and that that just would be built in from the start. But save people a lot of money as well. And which of would course. be yeah. people, people spending on their heating bills, they'd be spending in the economy instead. So it's a big mistake, I think. Adam, great to hear from you as always. Thank you. And you can read much more of Adam over at the Byline Times, bylinetimes.com. Over there as well, you will also see details of how to subscribe to the Byline Times, which is our fantastic monthly magazine or newspaper. I don't know what you call it. It's beautiful. Anyway, it's A4. It's glossy. It's lovely. You can see it now on selected newsstands, but you can have a copy of the Byline Times, which comes out monthly, dropping onto your doormat as well. Just take out a subscription. As I say, head over to bylinetimes.com. Not only will you get that wonderful newspaper, which combines the best of our online offerings with some really fascinating original content as well, you'll be helping to support this podcast. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been a We Bring Audio production in Birmingham for the Byline Times. We'll see you again very soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.